Greg. Helen. We talk a lot, and there's something that I know is a phenomenon that both of us experience, which is that when you tell your family members what your job is... They always think that we're restaurant critics. You, you knew exactly what I was going to say. On today's episode of The Eater Upsell, Greg's going to be talking with Eric Repair, the chef of New York's iconic Le Bernardin and author of the memoir 32 Yokes. You may have noticed that I didn't say Greg and I are going to be talking to him because just Greg is or, or Greg was when we recorded this episode. But if you really miss my voice, I'll be at the end saying the credits. So stick around for that. But first, Greg and I are going to shoot the shit a little about how we're fundamentally misunderstood as human beings. Everybody thinks I'm a restaurant critic. Everyone. Yeah. And not not like, oh, the first time you get a job, you know, at being a food editor, like after however long we've both been doing this. I mean, I was actually like uh, on the phone with my bank the other day and like, you know, somebody was like, what do you do? The, the person that was helping me, what do you do? And I'm like, I, I edit, I, I'm an editor at Eater. It's this food site. And they're like, your job must be great going around reviewing all the restaurants. Yeah. And it's and it it's interesting because I think that um, for a lot of people in the world who do not participate in the food industry, like the understanding of of what people who are not cooks do is largely restaurant criticism. Like if you're in food media, you are probably a person who assesses restaurants for a living. Yes, there are like uh, maybe what, just mm, two dozen actual restaurant critics in America right now? Yeah, I mean, depending on where you want to draw the line. I mean, it's a, they're increasingly rare. I mean, it's definitely an endangered species. And it also, and I, I don't know if you've actually written this, but I in a previous job, I did do some criticism. Like I went to restaurants and I wrote reviews of them and I gave them ratings. And um, it's it's not entirely the most fun job in the world. It actually, I think, you know, the, the, the people who have these jobs are incredibly talented and, and I think very much love their jobs, but it's it sounds really cool. And oh my God, you could not pay me enough money to be a restaurant critic. Like it seems like my nightmare. What was nightmarish about it? Well, you, you have very little control over your meal times. And if you think about, you know, what the pleasures are that a person derives from eating, like the things that got like you and I into the food world in the first place, the things that like whenever we talk to guests on the show and whenever we go out to parties and we talk to people, like the thing that we all love about food is like the extraordinary richness of choice, right? And like the opportunities to learn new things and explore all these new avenues. And part of the pleasure of that is that like you're not forced to do it. But when you're a restaurant critic, every single night you have to go out to eat. You have to go to restaurants multiple times, even if you don't like them. And I think in the same way that anything that is pleasurable becomes a chore once you are forced to do it and your paycheck depends on it, the act of going to restaurants becomes work. And Yet you also have to stay really like open minded about it because you are not writing your restaurant reviews for other critics, like other people who are like, oh, this is work. You're writing it like as a reader surrogate. You're writing it as service journalism. So you've got to be at work at this restaurant and be able to put yourself into the mindset of being somewhere for pleasure, spending your own money. I mean, like the, the, the psychological gymnastics of being a critic is just beyond me. So why do you think it is that when you say, you know, what you or I do? People think that we're restaurant critics. Because it's like the most high profile food writing job there is, isn't it? Or like the only food writing job that people kind of know about? Well, I think like, you know, Julia Roberts was a food critic in my best friend's wedding. And didn't she say like too much salt or something? <laughs> but like, At Charlie know, Trotter. She took a bite and said, too much. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And Charlie Trotter, like IRL would have 
come out of the kitchen and literally strangled her. Yeah. <laughs> but like, no, but I think like, you know, they don't they don't make like blockbuster romantic comedies about like people who work for a food website. Right. You know, no. Yet. <laughs> well, uh, the depiction of critics, I think, in pop culture is always so weird. It you know? is. It's always like there are like these like evil people or just like, you know, in the movie so Chef. mercurial. Yeah, no, I mean, because and I think like so frequently people who are making movies or writing novels or doing whatever it is where a restaurant critic is a character, like they are the surrogate for every criticism that the creator of this content has experienced in their life. It's like this volatile, impossible to please, like all powerful God figure who in the end must have his or her comeuppance. Right. But yeah. Yeah. Then that's the heroes. That's the victory of the hero at the end that they've either outsmarted them by serving them a four star meal or they've somehow caused their downfall. Right. You know? Like proven that they are, in fact, an empty shell with no knowledge of anything. All right. And it's always like really anti-critic, I got to say, it is super which is so weird because a lot of times you meet, you know, restaurateurs who are like, man, that three star review like made me who I am today and like kept my restaurant in business. But you only remember the bad news, you know, right. like the stuff that stings. And here's Greg and Eric Repair. So, you know, I've been following your career for a while now, and I think that, you know, I'd say you're a fairly famous chef. I think people know who you are and know what you do. But I think that with this book, uh, it kind of opened up, you opened up a side that a lot of people didn't know about you. Like, I didn't know about your your past, your upbringing, and um, it, it's a real, like, I just compared it to somebody asked what it was like. I said it's almost like a chef version of the 400 Blows, that movie, ah, you know? Oh, yes. That's a good comparison. That's what it reminded me yeah. of. And so I'm just kind of curious to start things off. Why, at this point in your career, did you want to tell that story about your life? Because I don't think a lot of people knew about this this part of, of your, your background, your your past. No, I mean, usually you don't go to parties and start to talk about your childhood and and the drama of the divorce of your parents and, and you, you know, everything else. Um, but Random House approached me actually eight years ago. Eight years ago? Wow. And it took me about two, two to three years to really say yes to, to writing a memoir. I thought I have no story. That was inspiring. And I didn't want to write a memoir just about myself to read about myself. I wanted to have something inspirational. But after two years, I wrote on a piece of paper the chronology of my life and, and what happened in my life. And I said, oh, I have, I have a good story that is interesting for many people. Obviously, my industry, but but other other um, uh, people will be very interested by, by the memoir, hopefully. And it's why I did it. Everyone grows up with only understanding their own upbringing, you know, as a young child. And when you entered, you know, the, the world of restaurants and became, you know, a boss and a chef, did you ever look back and realize that your upbringing was very different from maybe a lot of other people in, in your industry? I realized my, um, my upbringing was different when I was in boarding school, in culinary school already, because until then I thought that every child in the world had appetizer main course, cheese and dessert, lunch and dinner at home on a different China with different tablecloths. Um, <laughs> then I realized that was um, really um, something exceptional that m my mother was creating um, and because she wanted to have a special experience for her son, um, it, it was the best part of my day, obviously, because the rest was pretty tough at home. Yeah. Uh, 
you're very candid in this book about uh, your stepfather who is named Hugo in this book. In the book, we call him Hugo. And the very sad death of your biological father yeah. in 11. Um, and, you know, it's very, it's very candid. And one, one thing I uh, immediately took to uh, reading this book is that almost every page or I'd say every other page, there is something about food. In this, yes. in this part, and I think that uh, you write about it in a way that a lot of people don't write about food, which is the sort of emotional connection to food, what that experience is like. Yes, it was a connection because I was exposed to soul food with my two grandmothers, one from Italy, uh, one from Provence. My aunts were cooking also their, their food, soul food from the south of France. And then my mother was cooking this very refined um, food inspired by the chefs uh, that created Nouvelle Cuisine. And each time that I, I would eat the food, either way, soul food or refined food, um, it was an emotional relationship to the person who cooked it. Um, it was also the fact that we were at the table sharing a meal and, and exchanging ideas and having uh, pleasure and fun and discussions was also something that was emotional and that I was something that I was looking uh, to join, right? Um, so, yes, I have those amazing memories of food and it's always, always, always uh, something emotional about it. It's not only about the flavor itself. Wow. So there's one, I'm, I'm going to do what might be an embarrassing thing, but there's one passage I just wanted to read to our listeners that really stuck with me from your book. So you were writing about, um, you know, I'd say an early mentor, Jacques. Oh, yes. So uh, as, a, as a boy, you would follow him to the kitchen and, and watch him and learn a lot. Yes. And there was the moment where you tell him that you want to be a chef and yes. uh, you taste caviar for the first time. So mm -hmm. I'm going to read this. Sure. Uh, you say, the memory of trying a food for the first time imprints itself into the flavor. A happy memory can make a food delectable, make you crave it, savor it. And when it is gone, dream about the next time you'll have it. Every time I have caviar, I'm a teenage boy in Andorra, hanging out with my friend Jacques, eating spoonful after spoonful of beluga, downing it like ice cream. So what I am very curious about, like, that is a that is such a wonderful memory right there. It's like the celebration and this sort of awakening, I feel like, and... You know, back to what we were talking about, about uh, emotional memories tied with food. Um, what you do now at La Bernadin, when you're building a menu, how much does that factor into what you do? Do you think about emotions? Do you think about the, the way that flavors bring things up? Or everything, has, everything we create at Le Bernardin has a history. Um, either way, it's an influence from the past, from my childhood or, or my teenage years or my, my years growing in, in, in the kitchens in Paris. Or today, because I live in New York and I, I, have, I have the luxury to be able to travel uh, or to visit some other areas of the city, uh, when we create dishes, obviously flavors are different from different culture, Asia and Europe and, and South America and, and North America and so on. But it always has, um, in my mind, a, a memory attached to it. Uh, it's never just like a flavor with no, no um, emotional um, story. Um, I always remember with who I was, uh, what I was doing in the market in Vietnam, uh, or it's... It, 
it's related to, to my grandmothers or to spend the Sunday with the family um, and, and have those long tables with 20 uh, people eating and laughing and drinking. And so it's always, it's always related to, to some memories like that. That's so interesting. How do you go about the process of creating a new dish on mm. the menu? Well, because at Le Bernardin, we have a mantra that says the fish is the star of the plate which is essential for us to have, because if not, since we are a seafood restaurant, if we care about presentation first, if we care about new techniques and we don't care about the fish first, the dish will not be as powerful to elevate the qualities of the fish. So that dictates our style. But then we have a lot of freedom to bring um, flavors, ingredients, techniques, and to, again, keeping in mind our mantra to come up with those recipes. And we, were, we work in collaboration um, in between the sous chefs and myself. Uh, so sous chefs is basically the top of the kitchen. It's, it's about six to eight guys, depending on the, of the year. And, um, and we create dishes. And, you know, sometimes it's memories for my sous chefs who are like, listen, I'm, I was doing that when I was a child or I ate that long time ago with my family. What do you think? And, and then I'm like, oh, it reminds me something. And so it's always a story attached to what we do. So in 32 Yolks, you write a lot about your experience in Europe and going to the brigade system and working in some very good restaurants, coming to New York. Now, as someone who covers New York restaurants, I'm just very curious. When you landed here in New York, what was the stuff you had to try? What was and what was the stuff that blew you away? It was well. First of all, I, I came to Washington D.C. in '89. Right. Uh, first time I came to New York was 1986 as a tourist, and David Boulet was working at Vienna 79 as a consultant, but just before he opened Montrachet. And I was. It's very. You're going to find that's very strange. But I was very um, happy, of course, but um, puzzled by the fact that. The, the bread in New York was served warm because in Europe we, ser we serve the, the bread cold and I love it so much and I will stuff my face with warm bread in New York. And so I don't have those cliche like hot dogs or... Pastrami sandwich. Pastrami sandwich. Yeah. I, to me, it's like the bread and right away David Boulet took me in some places and I went to the Union Square, was uh, uh, starting and so on. And I have those amazing memories uh, of New York like that, which are not your usual um, memories from a tourist point of view or newcomer to the city. But if I have to say one dish that... Um, really represent my the, the, my beginning in New York City. It was uh, in Union Square, the Feijoada on the weekend uh, at coffee shop. Oh, wow. Coffee shop. Still going strong, coffee shop. They go strong. Yeah, wow. So what was that? And they still serve the Feijoada for $17. I think it's crazy prices. It's so cheap. Uh, so funny. I've never thought to order that there. I just, I never even knew they actually had it on the menu. Oh, I, but... go, I go there just for that. Wow. Yeah. So you joined the La Berna Dan team in 1991. Yes. And this was right after the original chef had passed away. Or you, no, you got there uh, well, right? I was in Washington, D.C. in 1989. Mm -hmm. I came to New York in 90. I worked with David Boulet for a brief time. Then 91, I joined Le Bernardin. And Gilbert Lecoz, the owner and chef, passed away in 94, three years later. So I was with 
him uh, working in collaboration with him for three years. So you had some very big shoes, to a very big mantle to take over. Yes. The beauty is that when you are young, you have no idea. I was very naive. And when he passed away, it was um, very sad and, and very emotional. But I just focus on keeping the kitchen um, at the high level where where the kitchen was, uh, create new dishes and and take care of the team and bring Le Bernardin, you know, um, to the next level. And and that was my f my only focus. And therefore, I was there 18 hours a day, six days a week. Um, uh, that was my life. And I, I didn't think any other uh, any other way. Uh, Le Bernardin is, I think, one of New York's favorite restaurants, if you look at it over the course of its, you know, decades in, in business there. I Thank mean, you. People can, like, you know, I I remember reading in old Zigat guides that it was always Le Bernardin, Union Square Cafe. Oh, and yes. people still have this connection to that restaurant. And I, I was thinking about other chefs that have been so synonymous with this one establishment. I think that the only one that pops off the top of my mind is, like, Alfred Portali at Gotham Bar yes, Grill. Just right. You know, you iconic guys. Iconic chef, iconic restaurant. And you just, you know, you have the wine bar and you have some other, you know, affiliated projects. But you are La Bernadette. You are there with your team and you guys that, are constantly pushing it forward. You know, yeah, it's funny that you say you are Le Bernardin. Many times people in the street call me, oh, Mr. Bernardin. Really? <laughs> yes. It makes me laugh. <laughs> so how did how over the decades do you think that restaurant has changed with you at the, the head of it there? We have changed a lot. I mean, when you if you take a snapshot today and you look at it in, in, in six months, things change. But but Le Bernardin has changed tremendously. First of all. Um, it was it was an iconic restaurant from the 80s, French restaurant from the 80s with a formal uh, service, kind of borderline stiff, with a style that was uh, very influenced by Gilbert Lecoz. Um, when Gilbert Lecoz passed away, obviously I brought my own style, much more um, uh, inspired by the Mediterranean at the time, and then later on by Asia when I discovered Japan and, and, and those countries. The service um, got much more relaxed and in interactive. And then we realized um, uh, five, six years ago, I mean, eight years ago, that um, the, the, the food changed constantly. Um, the service had, had changed and evolved. And then the decor was stuck in the past. So we decided to redo the decor of Le Bernardin to have a different energy dynamic um, that would be um, timeless in a sense. And that will um, attract a young crowd that we had and that will make them happy. And at the same time, wouldn't infuriate the loyal clients from the beginning. And I think you guys did a wonderful job of that. I mean, the Thank front you. the front room and the lounge yes. um, is a very different space in the back room. And, yeah. you know, reading your book, I was thinking about how all these these things that you loved growing up, you talk about like chocolate mousse. And oh, my God, yes. <laughs> dishes like that and very, you know, kind of hearty comfort food dishes. And, I, you know, you could describe the dining room at La Bernadette the food there as many things, but I don't know if I would call it comfort food, you know. <laughs> but in the lounge there, you have some things yes. that are more, a little bit more. First of all, you don't need a jacket. You don't need a reservation. Um, for lunch, we use the lounge to um, to do something actually good. Um, we have a, a, a menu that has appetizer main course dessert for $45. Um, same portions as the main dining rooms, same, I mean, recipes that are similar. And 
And um, out of the $45, $5 go to City Harvest. Uh, and so we use the lounge at lunch for to bring visibility to City Harvest and, and to make the locals happy in, in, in the buildings. And then at night, we have a different clientele that comes and wants to have some drinks and pick some food and, and have, um, a, a, I wouldn't say casual, but have a more, um, yeah, maybe casual uh, uh, atmosphere than, than the main dining room. And then, of course, the dining room, uh, you need a jacket. It's a civilized experience and it's, well, a, it's, it's, it's a nice uh, space, you know? Look, if, if the ladies are, are putting a lot of effort to, to look good and dress well, men should at least by respect just for the ladies have a jacket or for the other tables um, uh, wear a jacket because a lot of people come to celebrate. A lot of people have saved money to have an experience and um, it's part of the experience. How much do you pay attention to what else is going on in specifically kind of the fine dining world right now? Because it's changing all the time, I think. And do you go out? Do you, do you read about a restaurant and check it out? Or I read. I go out. Um, however, the, the trends do not affect me um, that much. And I'm slow to adopt what is good in the trends and incorporate it. Um, and I think it's good because... If you follow the trends, I mean, every six months you change your style. Do you have no soul? Your food has no soul. You know, you have to be yourself, really. Um, so therefore, when when molecular cuisine came, um, it took me maybe a year or two to start to incorporate some of the techniques to again ele elevate the fish. Were you a fan of that cuisine? Had you been to El Bouilly or any place like that? I went to El Bouilly thinking I would hate it. And I was like, oh, you're going to have to be open mind or you're going to have to. And you know what? The experience was absolutely amazing. And I left and I was like, it's not the kind of restaurant where you go every day of your life because it's absolutely not the, what you want to eat. But once every three, four, five years, that experience w was very unique. Uh, and today we see more and more, forget the molecular cuisine that died, actually. Uh, and that has been incorporated today into a more classic food and bring some lightness to strong flavors and so on. But people go to restaurants, especially in fine dining, to have a very special experience. It's not anymore about nourishing yourself or talking at the table and, and feeding yourself. It's about a holistic experience. And and uh, and we are here for that. It's interesting. I think that, uh, you know, there's a, a, something that we talk a lot about at Eater. And, you know, I think foodies like to talk about this idea. Oh, oh, is fine dining dead or is it being reinvented? I think one of the best things about New York is that we actually have establishments like La Bernadette and Per Se. And you have asked places you can aspire to go to. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's very interesting, the... the the prediction of, of fine dining dying, it was about eight years ago, 10 years ago. And I, d I never understood why why people, especially in the media, were saying fine dining is dying, is dying because you couldn't get a table at Le Bernardin, you couldn't get a table uh, at Jean-Georges, at Daniel, at Percé. It was impossible to get a table. And then people were like, well, nobody wants to dress anymore. And I said, well, why do they open Prada and Gucci and, and everywhere in a, in a city? Why the men, they buy the suits for what? <laughs> you don't go in a Prada suit at work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, fine dining um, survived that criticism or that prediction. 
evolved definitely fine dining has evolved like everything else everything evolves all the time and it's especially in new york it's a very fast pace and you always are inspired and you always move forward and therefore fine dining reinvented itself long time ago already and still reinvent itself uh, every day and it's probably one of the most dynamic side of the industry where we really um uh, every day make the effort to think about what we can do to create this special experience. And, and, and we see that now with uh, Daniel Hume at 11 Madison and, and Cesar Ramirez in, 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 in Brooklyn. It's, it's kind of a fine dining. I mean, it's not a kind, it's fine dining. Right. Um, and, and, and we see that all over the city. Fine dining is it's about delivering an experience that will be memorable and and people come for that and and we succeed when when they leave and they said to us, you know, this is really what I was looking for. And I will remember that for a long time. So during those dark days in like 2008, when the economy was going to hell and a lot of restaurants cut back and what, they started serving burgers, they shucked their tasting menus. Did you guys? We did exactly the opposite. Um, and so what? 2008 is the crash in October, I think. Yeah. So for, for fine dining restaurant, I mean... We are packed anyway until the end of the year. The, the private rooms are packed. The, nobody's going to cancel the Christmas party. And But 2009, in January, the cities shut down. All the restaurants are empty, especially um, expensive restaurants. And we decided to, to do many things. First of all, we decided to help the community. And therefore, for every client that was coming to Le Bernardin, we were giving $1 to City Harvest with a guarantee $100,000 donation to them, saying we're going to have at least this year 100,000 clients, which we did. We exceeded that expectation. Um, we wanted to be visible, so therefore we overnight um, uh, doubled the budgets of public relation, and we didn't cut corners. We didn't let any employee leave Le Bernard, except the ones who wanted to leave. Uh, but nobody was laid out. And I, at that time, I remember saying, people in recession, for the dollar they spend, they want the maximum. And therefore, we are going to give more than ever. And that, I think, made Le Bernardin a leader um, in uh, not only fine dining, but in the restaurant industry during that tough time in New York. So you guys were un, uh, unwavering. You didn't for a second think, well, why don't we just do a shorter menu? No, and nope. not at all. And, and I remember having a discussion with a, a Greek client of us who was spending a lot of money in wine each time he would come to Le Bernardin. And one day he asked me if we were okay because he said, the dining room is full. I said, yes, we are okay. I mean, and I said, you? He said, oh, it's a disaster. It's a, and I said, can I ask you a question? Why, if it's a disaster, why do you spend so much money on wine? And he said, what do you have for breakfast? And I said, I have Greek yogurt and coffee. He said, did you change the brand of the yogurt since it's a recession? I said, no. He said, well, so I'm not changing my wine. So, it, it, you know, New York has a lot of wealthy people and, and still have, also have a lot of people who, who are not necessarily wealthy, but who, who want to have an experience once a year and save money and, and come. And it happened during that recession when they wanted to have a special experience. They were thinking about us because they knew we were not cutting corners. We were actually delivering. About what percentage of your clientele, would you say, are uh, people visiting New York, let's say from overseas, 
you know, Europe, Asia, are you seeing is something we're very interested in tracking uh, at Eater is the influence of things like Michelin and you have three Michelin stars and yeah. the world's 50 best list, you know, these sort of, you well, know. Well, it definitely, I mean, look, the New York Times is very important. Without the New York Times support, I think it's very difficult to stay open in New York. And you guys have gotten four stars ever since you've been there. Yes. Uh, let five, me knock five on wood times? somewhere. <laughs> five visits? Yes, five visits. Well, five reviews. Five reviews. Yes. Uh, Ruth Rachel came 12 times. Wow. So <laughs> She's really thorough. She must have really liked it. <laughs> I, I hope so. I mean, she gave us four stars. So Michelin is very important as well because it brings credibility internationally. The New York Times and the Zagat, which are important as well, bring a lot of visibility and credibility locally in, in New York. But Michelin is very well read and, and uh, highly regarded in Asia, for instance. And people in Japan and in China, when they come to New York, they don't know if New York Times gave you four stars. They look at, at their Michelin. Uh, the 50 best is the new kid in the block. And they very they became very important because um, they touch a young audience and they are very international because they have covered the world from South America to Asia to you name it and they are there and and therefore in between all those media around us and and more local ones and international but those are very very important to the life of restaurants uh, at our level yeah no I, I definitely can understand that and see that I mean they are for people who want to spend their money in a certain sort of way you know and maybe yes. want to, to take these trips and but again it's not we are not one day I had this discussion with a journalist uh, from the observer and it was about feeding the 1%. And I said, no, I'm sorry, we don't feed the 1%. Of course we do in many ways, but we have so many young, actually millennials are very interested in having a very special experience, something to remember forever. And they lately in the dining room, I see more and more, they came, they came to Le Bernardin, they made a sacrifice to... Um, save money to come to us, to dress well, to uh, to do everything right. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to see that. Yeah, that's great that you guys are one of the last restaurants in New York with the dress code. I honestly think that's wonderful. Are we? <laughs> I yeah, know. I think it's just, well, there can't be more than a dozen at this point, yeah. you know. But I mean, like, look, if I'm going to go somewhere and, and, and I'm making an effort to dress well or I'm celebrating and I'm in a festive mood. The last thing I want is a guy with flip-flops, T-shirt, and, and, you know, in, in a nice environment with other people who are dressed. It, it, I, I think it's very selfish for someone or egoistic for someone to, to behave in, in, in such a way. Yeah, well, it, you know, the, it matches, um, you know, being dressed nicely, it definitely matches the entire experience that's around you. And I mean, not just the food, but the kind of service that, that you know, this is one one thing I always I love about the fact that this city has great restaurants like Le Bernardin is that you get this kind of service that is so different from what you might get at even a really good restaurant downtown or something um, or a more casual restaurant. You know, it is it is effortless. You know, the everything is dropped at the same time, is moved at the same time. You don't notice it, but it's you're kind of enveloped in this thing. You know, service should be there 
and they sh you should not feel them except if you want to see them and interact with them. But they are always there. So it's like we are talking now and let, let's suppose I, I stand up and I want to leave my chair. The waiter is here, but you, I didn't know he was here. I never felt he was listening to our conversation. I never, you know, but if I need, um, I don't know, a napkin and it is bringing it, you know, this is um, an experience that is not easy to deliver and consistency in service is not easy to deliver as well. But people appreciate that. Yeah. And of course, sometimes you like to go to a casual place and, and the service is different and it and it's totally fine with the environment but new york is a big city and it's space for everyone and and every day of the week you can have a different experience and enjoy it fully even if they are very different so in the back of the house somebody wants to work for you in your kitchen yes what's the bare what do they have to what's the bare minimum what do you look for well of course it's things that we i mean that's things that are common sense someone who's clean um someone who's willing to work hard, someone who's passionate, um, someone who, um, who can be a team player is very important. Because by yourself in a kitchen, you cannot do much. I mean, you know, when a restaurant is filled with 80 people, 60 people, uh, even some small restaurant with 40 people, by yourself, you can't provide consistency, quality. So you need to have an organization and you have to be able to work with other people who are coming into your territory in a kitchen and who are going to help you when you need it. And then when they need help, you have to go help them. So for me, number one quality being a team player. That's a that's a really interesting thing. I think I would not have assumed that. I don't know. I, th what I would have thought is, uh, you know, good knife skills or something well, like that. But the good knife skills, nobody's born with good knife skills. Mm -hmm. And we will take care of that. Do not worry about it. We, we, we know when we look at the resume and interview the cooks, we know where they stand and we decide where they're going to start. And very often they start in easy stations and therefore we teach them... Um, uh, our techniques, our values, uh, we teach them everything that we believe is right. So we, I'm not worried about the knowledge of the cook. We're taking care of that. What I'm worried about is about the mentality of a cook. So unlike uh, a lot of your contemporaries, and I mean contemporaries on this fine dining scale, people like Thomas Keller and Daniel Boulud, you know, well, you have Aldo Sam Wine Bar, the wine bar that you opened with your sommelier and partner there, yes. and it's it's a great addition to Midtown, and people love it. And it's fun. You get into a little bit more of that kind of homey cooking there with the the cocoa van legs. And yes. And uh, no, no fish. No nope. fish at the wine bar. Too yeah. close to Le Bernardin. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, unlike some of your contemporaries, you know, you haven't done this, this scale-down restaurant in that same way that, like, Daniel Boulud, he has, well, he has a, a ton of restaurants that are all great, but he has, you know, the epicerie where you can just go in and get a hot dog, yes, you know? Absolutely. Uh, Thomas Keller has Bouchon, which yes. is, has a lot of integrity as well. But uh, Absolutely. Do you have any any sort of inkling in your mind? Do you ever want to, you know, do do that that thing that's just a step or two down? So we have a restaurant in Cayman Island, but it's basically Le Bernardin by the beach. Mm-hmm. That sounds lovely. With a sense of place. So you're in the Caribbean. Uh, obviously, it's the ambience of the Caribbean. But I actually tried to to open bistros or cafes. I tried a couple of times. It didn't make me happy. I was really, really... 
uh, not happy with the experience of, of doing that. It's not for me. So I'm not judgmental. And obviously, I'm happy that Daniel has, has successfully opened so many places. And it, it's very rewarding for him. I know that for a fact. Jean-Georges has done that. A lot of chefs have, uh, you mentioned Thomas, and, and, and many other chefs have done it. And they are very happy and, and they love it. It doesn't do it for me. I like um, being at Le Bernardin most, most of my time. I like to be with my team, work like an artisan. Uh, I like to mentor them because I am in an age where I mentor them now. <laughs> um, and, and that, for me, it's very rewarding. I come back home, um, I have a good lifestyle, um, I see my family, I have time for myself, I have time with the team, it's very interactive, I'm living my passion. My passion was always to be the chef of fine dining, and it's what I have, and I don't want anything else. I, I, I'm, I'm content. There you go. That's great. <laughs> uh, all right, chef. So we've actually come to the time in the show that we call the lightning round. Okay. So I'm just going to ask you some questions and just the first thing that pops out of your head. We ask every every guest on the show this. So. Okay. Okay. So the first question is, you're at the airport and you have an hour to kill. What do you do? Which airport? <laughs> uh, well, okay. What's the airport you go to? JFK. I hope I am in the Delta Terminal. Um but even LaGuardia, uh, the Delta Terminal is pretty good. And uh, now in airports, I mean, you, you have places that deliver good food. Uh, I, I know my way to get a good pizza. I know my <laughs> way. I'm not joking. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, yeah. So, so I, I always go to a place to eat. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be the experience of being in the streets of New York. Of course, but today in many many airports you find some some good places, and I'm looking for those places. Okay, lightning round question number two: What's the best thing you've had to eat in the last year? Whoa, that's a tough one. Mm. Anything with black truffles. Anything with black truffles. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite What's your favorite thing to do with black truffles when you get them? So this is black truffle season right now, right? Well, from Australia. Oh, right. Because it's the winter over there. Uh, usually the black truffle is from December to March, oh. and then you have a break, and then it starts again because the Australians now have black truffles. I, I'm fascinated by black truffles. Um, I love white truffles, but you, you cannot cook with them. You can only shave them. If not, if you cook the white truffle, you lose the flavors. The black truffle actually uh, releases its flavor into, into the sauce, into anything you do. So... I love to cook with it, but as 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 a eater, I loved I love black truffles. Anything with black truffles, um, so a sandwich. You, I mean, like a toast. Yeah, you put some shaved black. I mean, I, I know it's it's very uh, elitist <laughs> to think no. oh, a piece of bread and black truffles, but I love that. I mean, that's the best way to enjoy it, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so if you had to watch a TV show for ten hours, you had to binge watch a TV show. Which would it be? A new season of a show, or do you watch TV? I will watch Bourdain. Yeah. Parts unknown. Yeah. Actually, He's your I, buddy. Do I do that. <laughs> you do that. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so what was the best trip you ever took with him? You, you've done that. You've uh, done these shows many times. We have done times. a lot of shows together. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, they're all very different. And we have a good dynamic. We, we understand each other pretty well. We are very good friends, as you know. And... Uh, um, I, had, I mean, the last show that we that Anthony aired with me was in Marseille, which was hilarious. Um, and, and we spent, I mean, for, to do one episode, it's one week. And we spent one week of laughing and, and, and having a good time. 
Um, I did another, another show with him in China, in Chengdu. It's going to come in the fall. Oh. I don't know if I'm supposed to say it or not, but anyway, the scoop. Um, and we had 10 days of like same same thing. I mean, it's, it, it's so much fun. Um, the shows look fun, but they also look a little taxing, like travel, a lot of eating, a lot of drinking to be social and polite. Well, that Anthony problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Lightning round question. If you go to the bar in heaven and the bartender is pouring your favorite drink, what is it? Dirty martini with vodka stir. Ooh. Very nice. And the last lightning round question is, if you were not the chef at Le Bernardin, if you had not just written 32 yolks, if you'd not just had your career, what would you what would you have liked to have done? I would like to be a forest ranger in the mountains of Andorra in the Pyrenees and take care of the uh, beavers and the squirrels and the trees. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Chef Eric Repair, thank you so much for coming by the studio today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. The Eater Upsell is recorded in Vox Media's exquisitely beautiful Midtown Manhattan studios. Your hosts are Greg Morbido and me, Helen Rosner. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. Our producers are Patrick Bulger and Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our studio team is Miles Yule and Alex Ulreich. And of course, the most important person involved in the creation of all of this is you. Yes, you. Thank you, beautiful listener, for being who you are. <laughs>